Hey, good morning, everybody. You can have a seat. And if you have a Bible, uh, we're going to be in the book of Acts. And if you don't have a Bible or if you don't have uh, one of these journal copies of the book of Acts, uh, raise your hand. We'd love to give you one of these. Just there you go. A couple people raise your hand in the back. The buses will wait. Just keep on raising your hand. And uh, Maggie will run around and give you one of these. And one of the reasons that we're handing these out is because uh, as we study scripture, we want to give you an opportunity to uh, write your experience and what the Lord is doing and fully engage in what we're doing. Uh, we're not just coming to a religious ceremony. We're here to encounter the Lord and what he has for us today. And so uh, we've been studying through the book of Acts and Acts, uh, if you recall, is a book about <clears throat> the early season of the church. It's a historical document about how the church got started and what happened in that first generation of the church. And overall, a sweeping vision of it, it was, it's a season of renewal and a season of mission. It's a season where the Lord is pouring into the early church and renewing them and making them alive. And that aliveness always resulted in mission. But we've also seen that when renewal wasn't happening, a lot of times mission brought about the power of renewal. And so we have talked about that this renewal <clears throat> has power to it. Uh, when we talked about the Holy Spirit speaking in tongues, you know, people being healed. This was a powerful, transformative work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the church. And then uh, last week, we talked about grace and how grace brought tremendous renewal in the church. And when tr grace begins to work in our lives, we talked about how grace allows me the mercy to love things, uh, no, to love people and use things instead of loving things and using people. It switches it for us uh, because grace isn't just the grace that is poured out on us because when grace is poured out on us, obviously it brings forgiveness and it brings life and it brings love and it, it brings the promises and blessings of God gets poured out on us. But when grace gets poured out on us, something happens because now we become people that are eager to see that same grace get poured out of us. So when we experience love, it leads us to love. And when we experience the generosity of God, it leads us to be more generous. And when we experience the forgiveness of God, well, you get it. It leads to forgiveness. And so grace is not just making us receivers, but it's also making us givers. So we got great grace, great power. And today we're going to talk about this. Great fear as a part of renewal. And I got to tell you, all right, uh, I told the first service, this passage of scripture <clears throat> is really a difficult passage of scripture. It's not an easy one to understand. In fact, I'm not even really sure how I'm going to preach it today. And I told the first service, I said, have you ever seen like a juggler who like juggles like knives or they come out and they light torches, you know, and they're juggling torches or... Has anybody here seen a juggler juggle chainsaws? Have you seen that before? Like when a juggler comes up and goes, I'm going to juggle chainsaws. Nobody goes, go get the ambulance ready. Nobody does that because nobody expects a limb to get hacked off, you know, or take a face chainsaw or anything like that because we're pretty confident that that juggler, when he gets up on the stage, he's done this probably 10 million times 
and he's actually bored with what he's doing and he's probably thinking about what appetizers he's going to have at dinner while he's juggling. What I want is I want to be there the first time he did it. Like the very first time where he jumped away and said crud and he had to go back to Home Depot and get another chainsaw because he dropped that one. That's what you're about to witness. Because <laughs> I'm juggling chainsaws for the first time. So here's what would really help, all right? What would really help is for you to embrace one thing and let's do it together, okay? First of all, if you're bored already, there's great coffee out in the hallway. There's a running track around the neighborhood. Go have yourself. <clears throat> Anytime you walk into a love relationship, you have to understand that love relationships aren't marked by absolute certainty. Love relationships are often marked by mystery. Like Renee and I have been married for 35 years, and I'm just going to let you in on a little secret. I still don't understand her. I don't. <laughs> I mean, literally, she is a mystery to me. Sometimes we'll be sitting out by the fireplace talking, and I will literally look at her and go, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. <laughs> and she's crystal clear. And so there seems to be more mystery in this love relationship, but there are certain things that are not mysteries. And those little things that are not mysteries are big deals. They're really big deals. So today, we're going to embrace this passage going, okay, a lot of mystery in this so that we can get to that one thing that's a big deal. Is that okay? Okay, Alicia, are you gonna come in? Lisa, Alisa, I'm sorry. <laughs> okay, that's right, that's the mystery is Alisa. Good, Rich, good to see you. She's gonna be reading in chapter five, verse one. Yes, okay. Now a man named Ananias together with his wife Sapphira also sold a piece of property. Okay, stop, stop for a second. Because, okay, we're introduced to two characters, Ananias and Sapphira, and uh, it says they also sold a piece of property. And that also there is, is connecting us to something to help us understand what this text is about. Because when Luke wrote the book of Acts, he didn't break it up into chapters. That, that came much later so that we could kind of find our way through scripture. But if we go back to the end of chapter four, in Luke's mind, this is a continual story. Look what it says in chapter four. It says, Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and bought the, brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. So what he's trying to do is he's trying to frame the story we're about to read in the frame of Barnabas. And here's what happened. Barnabas was a part of this community. This community had grown from zero to like 5,000 people in just a few days. And all these people that had come to Jerusalem for Pentecost for the long weekend of the festival ended up staying for months to learn from the apostles. So they were out of food. They didn't have a place to stay. They, I mean, they had everything they needed, but they didn't have the resources to get it. And so everybody was pitching in to try to help this growing community of thousands grow in their faith. And Barnabas said, you know what I'm going to do? I've got this piece of land outside of Jerusalem. I'm going to go sell it. And then he brought it and he brought it to the apostles and said, do whatever you need to do to take care of everybody. And everybody was like, slow clap. <clears throat> Barney, you are the man, dude. You are the man. And we're, you're such the man. We're going to change your name. To what? Barnabas, son of encouragement. How did he feel about that? We don't know. Anyway, but you see that frame? That's the frame. And now in walks Ananias and Sapphira. And the story continues. 
With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Oh, wait a minute. <laughs> Come on, now you gotta admit that's a shocker, right? Okay, he's dead. Story gets better. He doesn't get better. The story gets better. He's dead. He ain't coming back. All right. <laughs> and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land? Hold your breath. Yes, she said, that is the price. Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Oh my, she's dead too. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Not fear, great fear seized the whole church. Okay, what is this about? And I'm just gonna confess to you, I don't know. But let's kind of navigate our way through it because let's talk about a few things that we are gonna make clear. This is a historical document. This is Luke telling the story of what actually happened in the early church. This, isn't, this is just describing what happened. This isn't, this isn't setting a precedence. So what I mean by that is, moms, you can't go home today and read this story to your children and say, if you lie to me, God's going to kill you because God kills liars. You can't say that because if God kills liars, you're not going to make it home because we're all liars, right? Okay, just stay with me. Here's what we don't know about this passage. <clears throat> like we don't know, first of all, how did Peter know? I mean, honestly, how did Peter know? Like, did he have a dream? Like, like did he have an angel that followed him and whispered in his ear? Was he a prophet? Like, did, did he have visions? Could he read minds? Like, how did Peter know? Did he make a fortune in the stock market? Like, how does this all work? And the answer is, we don't know. It could have been that the guy he sold the property to, Ananias sold it to some guy named Bert, and Bert is a good friend of Peter's, and he came over to Peter's and says, you wouldn't believe what I got that piece of property for. Or it could be that Peter was out that night and he was having a beer at the local pub and he heard a couple people talking about the property and somebody said, this is what it was sold for. We don't know. And what I'm trying to say is, hey guys, these are humans. Don't try to over-spiritualize this where it's not over-spiritualized and make it sound like that Peter gets to experience God in ways that we can't experience God. He was just a dude like us, all right? Now, God gave him great gifts and he was an apostle, but he was still just a man. 
Something else that we don't know. Let's just put it up there. I don't know why God killed these two people, but it is clear that God's hand was definitely in this. It wasn't like, you know, Ananias had a heart condition and he was a part of a support group. And when he went to that support group, he met Sapphira and the two of them, they got together and they both had these severe heart conditions that as soon as they felt trauma, boom, they dropped dead. What a coincidence. (laughs) It's not what happened. It is very clear in this passage that God's hand is in this and he's doing something. But why is God so severe with this sin when so many others are kind of passed over? Don't know. Let's talk about something else we don't know. Were they Christians? How many of you think they were Christians? How many care? All right, there you go. Let me close this in prayer. You've had enough. All right. We don't know. Man, I could make a case. I I could make a strong case for these are believers. But I could also make a strong case that they're not believers. And I could also mount up a lot of commentaries and historians that would make a case for either side. We just don't know. And then finally, what what were they afraid of? Were they afraid of Peter? Were they afraid of God? Were they afraid of lying? And was this fear good? Was this the kind of fear that God wanted in the church? I don't know. But let's look at the facts, okay? So the first fact is, and we have to agree to this, that Ananias and Sapphira, they forever ruined that name, Ananias and Sapphira. There is not a parent alive that's going to name their kids Ananias. Yes, child, you are a liar. So we are naming you. (laughs) No, it's ruined. The second thing that we can all agree upon is that they agreed to sell some property, which is okay. It's completely okay, and it's a part of life. It's okay to own property, and it's okay to own that property and never sell that property, and it's okay to sell property. And when you sell that property, what we also uh, notice here is that they agreed to give some of the money to the church. Completely okay. Completely okay. If you sold some property, that is your property. And when you sell it and you get money, that is your money. And if you want to give some of that to the church and the Lord's leading you to do that, good for you. If you don't, it's still your money. No big deal whatsoever. But how generous this is and how awesome this is that they too want to help the work of the church. So they decide to give just some of the money. Again, it is completely okay. Like, it was okay if they got, you know, a bunch of money for the property and they're just going to give half of it to the church and the other half, they're going to go and celebrate their 10th anniversary down in the Keys. Way to go. Ananias, you know, do it upright, man. Celebrate your wife. Or maybe they wanted that chariot with the spinning wheels, you know, or they wanted, you know, AC for their house. I don't know. They were completely free to give as little half some, most, none to the church. And I just want you to hear that. This is not a mandate that you need to give up everything you have to the church unless what you have is a lot and we need it. So come on and give it. No, I'm I'm joking. All right. You're like, man, if God kills sinners, he would have dropped Randy years ago. It's true. Here's the thing they did. They sold the property and they agreed together to make it look like they were giving all their money to the church like Barnabas did, when in reality, they weren't. What they were practicing 
was deception. In other words, and I'm going to couch this in maybe, okay, because we don't know. I'm just going to say maybe, maybe Ananias and Sapphira were saying to each other, we really care about what people think about us. Like really care what people think about us. And we really want people to like us. And we really want people to admire us. And we really want people to respect us. And if we would do what Barnabas did, maybe they would give us a new name. But let's don't give it all. I care more about the accolades of having a great reputation than I care about the sacrifices that actually come with that. We call that pride. Maybe, maybe Ananias and Sapphira were really had the hooks of pride inside of them and their life was me, 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 me. What's good for us? Because you love you some you, I love me some me. And sometimes I love you for me, you for me. Because we love us. As Kurt Atkinson, the late Kirk Atkinson, uh, if you remember, he preached here a few years back. My good friend who passed away a year ago. One of the first things he said on this pulpit was, I'm addicted to myself. He said, I can't help it. I am addicted to me. He said, I'm not much, but I'm all I think about. <clears throat> and I'll never forget that. I mean, come on, what's the big deal? I mean, let's be honest. We all struggle with pride. <clears throat> We're not honest all the time. What's the big deal? Well, <laughs> it was in 1979 that uh, this woman named Rose, Rosie uh, filled out an application to run in the New York City Marathon. And, uh, but she was filling it out last minute and they turned her down because it was already full. So she sent them a letter telling them that she was dying of a brain tumor and she had cancer and that this would be the last chance she ever had to ever run a marathon again. Uh, and this was her lifelong dream to actually complete a marathon before she dropped dead. And they felt such great compassion for her that they let her run in the New York City Marathon. A year and a half later, Rosie was still alive. <clears throat> and Rosie entered the Boston Marathon. And um, what's amazing about Rosie's entry into the Boston Marathon as she lined up with all the world's best runners, in about two hours and 31 minutes, she was the first person across the finish line. First person. And it was astounding because nobody saw her at any of the checkpoints. Nobody knew who she was. She wasn't on any uh, scale a world-class runner. Nobody ever even heard about her. And when she crossed the line, the announcers commented on how she doesn't seem to have a long-distance runner's physique. And she wasn't sweating at all. So when they were interviewing her after the run, they were going, hey, we, what did you run the New York uh, City Marathon time in? And she said, and he said, so in 18 months, you improved your time by almost 45 minutes. How did you do that? And she goes, I, I don't know. I just like to run through the park. And they were saying, so tell us about your in intervals or what is it called? It's intervals. And she goes, I've never heard of that. And this was a training tool that every runner and it was becoming more and more obvious that Rosie Ruiz <clears throat> may be pulling off the greatest athletic hoax that has ever happened up to that time. What Rosie did was she actually started on the, on the starting line and then snuck out through the crowd, got in the subway and went to the finish line. She didn't run the marathon at all. 
So it shouldn't surprise you that two years later, she was arrested for embezzling $60,000 from the company she was working for. She was put on probation, and it probably doesn't surprise you that a year after that, she was arrested for uh, selling cocaine and spent years in prison. Probably wouldn't surprise you. But let me ask you this question. That Boston Marathon, what percentage of the runners that day, which, how many people run the Boston Marathon? 20,000 people. What percentage of those 20,000 people, when they were telling the story of their run on the Boston Marathon, hedged their description of their time when they were telling the story to other people at a cocktail party? How'd you run? I ran. It was my best time ever. How many people hedged even 10 minutes or just say, yeah, I, I did it around four hours when it was really four and a half hours? How many people didn't lie on the scale that she lied on, but did lie about their time? 5%? 10%? No? 80%? Is it possible that that what Rosie wanted and what Ananias and Sapphira, Sapphira wanted was they wanted what appeared to be character without the suffering that comes with character. In Romans chapter five, it says we rejoice in our suffering, which is hard to do. It is really hard to do. But when we rejoice in our suffering, it's lifting our eyes off our circumstances and we're putting our eyes on the one who, who is above all our circumstances. It says when we do that, it produces perseverance. And then that per perseverance produces character. And that character then produces hope in our lives. See, I have to be willing to rejoice in my suffering for character to be born. Rosie wasn't willing to get up early and make those runs. She wasn't willing to put herself under the strain and the pain that comes in suffering to actually wear the character of a champion. She didn't want to do that. But that's true about most of us. In fact, Jesus says in Matthew chapter 6, be careful be very careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you'll have no reward from your Father in heaven. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues or on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they've received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done as secret, will reward you. What Jesus is saying very, very plainly to us is be very careful. Be very careful that when you do things, if you're doing them for you, for your image, for how people are going to think about you, for your reputation, be very careful because there's your reward. Pride's kind of a liar. And what's, what's crazy about pride is it first forces me to lie to myself. Before I ever lie to you or to the Holy Spirit, I have to lie to me. And when I start lying to myself, lying to you is easy because the lie then has become truth for me. And lying to God is even easier because it's become true to me. And pride, when it comes in and it gives us that lie, we start to think to ourselves, maybe I'm better than I really am. Or maybe I'm better than you. Or maybe I don't really need you. I don't need a small group. I don't need someone speaking into my life. I don't need help. I don't need anything but me. I can do it. 
You know, when we walk in pride, we cover up that part of us that we talked about last week that I'm not enough, that feeling inside of us that I'm not enough. And when we feel like we're not enough, we become pretenders, we become performers, we become those who are perfectionists because we've become hypocrites, that we're hiding behind a mask that's not really us. And I'm afraid to let you see the real me. And so I live my whole life hiding the real me and only giving you the you that I think you're going to love. It's like we live our whole lives on a first date. You know, the first date, the first date, you know, that person that you really like. And you're like, I can't believe they're going out with me. And this is, you pick the restaurant and then you spend an hour or two changing shirts. That's not the right shirt. That's not the image I want to project, you know, and your breath is clean and you, everything's just together. It's all together. And you go because you want to be together with that person because you know, and I know if they saw the real you and all the gritty nittiness of who you are, there's no way they would go to date number two. So date number one is where we live perpetually. I mean, compare that first date to somebody who's been married for 35 years. And Renee goes, hey, do you want to go out to dinner? I'm like, yeah, let's go. And she goes, really? You're going out like that? You've had that on for three days. I'm like, I think I'm okay. Let's go. Because we've moved past the first date. But if we spend our whole lives on the first date, which is I'm pretending, I'm performing, and I'm constantly trying to be a perfectionist, then certain things happen in my life. And one of the things that happened in my life is, is failure is not a learning experience anymore. Because failure is an experience of death now. Because I can't tolerate failure because failure runs the risk of exposing me and my not enoughisms. And I know I'm not enough. It's just you that I don't want to know I'm not enough. <clears throat> well, Satan comes in and he uses that pride because pride is his language. It's what caused him to fall. And then he brings lies into that. And Peter recognized that when he turned to Ananias. He said, Satan has filled your heart. And what's crazy about Peter saying that to him is it's almost like Peter is saying, I know it takes one to know one because I've seen this before. In Matthew chapter 16, Peter was talking to Jesus and Jesus was explaining to Peter, I got to go to the cross. And Peter said to Jesus, God forbid it. This shall never happen to you. Like imagine saying that to Jesus. And what does Jesus say to him? Get behind me, Satan. He calls Peter Satan. I mean, that's pretty serious that Jesus is calling Peter Satan. So Peter's been there. And he's looking at Ananias and he goes, you've given yourself over to something that's very dark, man. You have an enemy who is seeking you out and wants to devour you. And you've given yourself to his work. Okay. What would that look like here at Midtown? What would it look like if, if we decided here at Midtown that we are going to become a place where we can step back and we're always on a first date? What if pride got its hooks into this place called our church, your church, you. What would that look like? We'd become a community that hides. We'd become a community that pretends. We would become a community that all we talk about is how God wants you to be perfect. We'd become a community where we can't be real. We can't be honest. We'd become a community of competition and comparison. You know, one of the things that I think we would become is we become amazing at reaching the poor in this city. We would become so good at social inaction or 
social action, that we're actually moving out of here because it looks so good for us to wear the badge of that we're socially aware and we're socially engaged, that we would do so many good things, it would be remarkable. But the whole time, we become a community that doesn't desperately need Jesus anymore. We'd become a community that's just okay. We'd become a community that has no power and we become a community that needs no grace. And that should really scare us. So that, that maybe that's what happened. We don't know that. <clears throat> but let's run to what we do know what happened. Here's what we know. This whole story, the one thing that we know is grace isn't blind. And here's the scary part. What if God is more serious about your sin and your life than you are? What if it's possible that God loves me, he's forgiven me, grace is coming to my life, but grace, when it finds me where I'm at, grace doesn't leave me where I'm at. In Philippians chapter one, it says, being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Jesus Christ. The one who started a good work in you is gonna finish that work. In 2 Corinthians chapter 3.18, it says, and we all, with unveiled faces, behold the glory of the Lord, are being transformed. Let me say it again. We are being transformed into the same image from, from one degree of glory to the other. What are we being transformed into? The image of Christ. He's changing us into him. For this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. So when Midtown was young, early in our days, uh, and we were, we were at one location down at Rocket Town, we had a lot of people in our community that had come out of rehab and a lot of people that were trying to get clean. And I had heard about one of them that was in our discipleship program that we hadn't seen for a couple of weeks. And I'd heard that he had gone back to a drug house and had gone back to using. And heroin was his drug of use. So <clears throat> we beat all the bushes to try to find out where is he. And we finally found out where he was. And uh, I made my way over there and walked in. And if you've never been in a drug house, it's a party place, man. Let me tell you, they're living the high life. Um, <clears throat> it was a dark, ugly, you know, just a place of people that are just strung out and living on drugs. And I walk in to him and confront him and say, hey, man, I love you. That's why I'm here. Uh, let's go. And he said, I'm not going anywhere. And I said, well, then I'm not going anywhere. And he goes, you got to go. This is not a good place for you. And I'm like, wow, that's silly. Um, and I looked at him and I said, hey, I'm not leaving without you. See, that's grace for us. Grace is when God moves into our lives and meets us where we're at. He commits himself never to leave you, never to turn his back on you, never betray you. In fact, he goes before you and he comes behind you. And he is so committed to your transformation that even if he has to work against your pride to create transformation, he's going to do it. Even if he has to work against the things that you so desperately love, he's going to do it. And let me tell you something. That is scary. You know why it's scary? Because I love my stuff. I love my life. I love my plans. I love how I got everything organized out. I love how it's working for me. And you're telling me that an agency outside of myself that is greater than me, that is motivated by love, is walking into my house and going, we got to go. <clears throat> and I'm not leaving without you. That's what this story is about. 
is that Jesus was so jealous for the early church that he says, no hypocrisy is going to get in on that level and destroy the authenticity and the vulnerability here. And I'm so serious about sin. I want y'all to know how serious I am about sin. And he's that serious about your sin as well. In Psalm 139, David understood God moving into my life with that kind of intentionality and that kind of passion required him to do something outside of myself. It says, search me, God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Find me. If there's any offensive way in me, lead me out of here. Do you know that many of us are going, no way. No way. I know that I'm lonely and I'm profoundly lonely, but I'm not going to deal with my loneliness. Instead, I'm going to give my life to envy. And I'm going to just constantly look at other people's lives. I know, I know that I don't feel like I have enough. And so I'm going to give my life to more. And now greed becomes the consuming part of my life. More, more, more. Or that I've never felt loved and I don't really know what love is and I don't know how to get love, but I'm just going to give myself to lust, lust, desire, more, more. I've never had the admiration. I've never had other people look at me with respect. So watch me succeed. Get out of the way. And the Lord comes into those places and said, it's time to heal. It's time to make new. I'm going to expose those things and lead you in the way everlasting. That's why it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 4, God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance. And that's what we're about to do. What we're about to do is we're about to pause and give ourselves time to be present with the Lord and let him bring to our hearts and our minds those places in our lives that he is calling us to put down. And let me say this about repentance just real quick. We're not talking about penance. We're not talking about you, you saying, God, I'm sorry, and that earns you forgiveness. We're not talking about you doing uh, some kind of commitment to God. If, you know, if, I, if I pray nonstop for a week, then you'll be for me. That's penance. You don't have anything to pay. Jesus paid it all. Repentance is coming to the cross and saying, Lord, restore back to me the sanity of my mind. The things that I have loved that I should not love, teach me to love the things that I should love. Restore back unto me the joy of my salvation and lead me in the way everlasting. So the band's going to come in in just a moment and we're going to sing and um, then they're going to lead us in a time of confession and then a time of rejoicing as we come out of that for renewal. So let me pray for us. Lord, thank you, Father, For the power and the grace that is yours. Thank you, Father, for the pursuit of us in that grace. Lord, it is scary. It is a scary thing to know that you care more about those places in my life of pride and unbelief and arrogance. Lord, you are calling me to that place of humility where I experience love and actually give love. Lead us now, Father, in our time of confession and guide us in your truth. In Christ's name, amen.